We're going to finish up our study of Jude this evening. End of the year, end of a sermon series. Appropriate place to end as well. One of, I don't know, it's always dangerous to say that, but there's some passages that tend to transport you to the highest heights of the Christian faith, I guess, and this might be one of them. The end of Jude. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Before we read it, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, are eager to hear again from your word. Uh, And Lord, we are eager to have your word transport us, as it were, to uh, the heights and glorious places of our faith, as it reminds us ultimately of who you are as our great God and Savior. Lord, help us to understand tonight again and to, to grasp afresh who you are as our great God and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jude, verses 24 and 25, used it as the benediction this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation, the, uh, the Christian life is not easy. John Newton acknowledges this in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, when he writes, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. That's the Christian life. It's full of dangers and toils and snares. John Bunyan acknowledges this as well in his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. In that book, the main character, Christian, encounters many people and situations which threaten his faith and hinder his journey to the celestial city. In fact, there's a couple times while you're reading the story that you wonder if Christian is even going to make it through. All of this points to the reality that the Christian life is hard. It's difficult. It's a battle. And then, of course, Jude acknowledges this also uh, in this letter that we've been studying. And, and Jude, Jude makes it plain to us, doesn't he, that this difficulty we face as Christians, it's, it's not just out there in the world, but it's here in the church as well. For in the church too, there are enemies of the cross. In the church too, there are people who deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And that's why, so far as Jude's letter is concerned, we must give ourselves to contending for the faith. Because even here, there are people who contend against it and who seek to lead us astray. The the Christian life is not easy. And yet even as we walk this difficult journey through faith in Christ, even as we give ourselves to fighting daily the good fight of faith, we dare not forget that we, we serve a God who, as we just sang, we serve a God who holds us fast. 
We serve a God who has not only elected us unto salvation in Christ and who has not only called us unto salvation in Christ, but who also keeps us and preserves us unto salvation in Christ. The Canons of Dort describes well the reality of our situation as believers in Jesus. This is what it says. Because of the remains of indwelling sin and the temptations of sin and of the world, those who are converted could not persevere in a state of grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful. And having conferred grace, he mercifully confirms and powerfully, powerfully preserves his people in it, even to the end. All right, that's what the canons say, that God who gives us grace also confirms and powerfully preserves us in that grace to the end, right? So in Christ, we're, we're, we're not only an elect people, we're not only a called people, we're not only a forgiven people, we're not only an adopted people, we're also a, a preserved people. We're a kept people. And there may be nowhere in all of Scripture where we see this truth taught and extolled more clearly and more beautifully than here at the end of Jude. Jude closes out this letter with a doxology. A doxology uh, is simply words of praise to God. And this is a fitting way for Jude to close out this letter because in this letter, Jude has called us to look around at these people who've crept into the church and who've perverted the grace of God and who are denying our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And he's called us to contend for the faith against these people. And while it's necessary for us to do all of these things, we know how it is, don't we? If we look around too much and for too long, we'll probably grow a bit depressed and discouraged about what we see. And Jude knows that in the end, we must ever and always lift our eyes and our hearts and our minds to God. And we must be captivated ultimately by his beauty and by his glory and by his grace if we're going to find the strength and the energy and the courage and the ability to continue living the Christian life. And so Jude calls this letter, or excuse me, Jude closes this letter by calling us to praise God. And we'll see tonight that he calls us specifically to praise God for what he is able to do, and also he calls us to praise God for who he is. Right? Those will be our two points tonight. Jude closes his letter by calling us to praise God for what he is able to do and for who he is. So first, Jude calls us to praise God for what he is able to do. Verse 24 begins with these words. Now to him who is able. The word able is translated from the Greek word dunamai. That's a fun Greek word because you can hear an English word uh, in there. What is the English word? Dunamai. Uh, dynamite actually is the English word in there. Uh, it's a word that literally means power. So when Jude says to him who is able, he's saying to him who has power, all right? 
He is, he is praising God for what God is able to do. He's praising God for what God has power to do. And then he goes on to tell us that God is able, God has the power to do two things. The first of those two things is this. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Now let's be clear, Jude here is not talking about physical stumbling. He's talking about spiritual stumbling. The Greek word for stumbling is a word used about four other places in the New Testament. Each and every time this word is used, it's used as a clear metaphor for sinning. For instance, James 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. When Jude there is talking about stumbling, it's clearly a reference to sinning. Or excuse me, when James there talks about stumbling, it's clearly a reference to sinning. And, and when Jude here speaks about stumbling, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about stumbling spiritually, stumbling in our walk with Christ, stumbling in that we fall into sin. Now that said, we need to understand that there is both an immediate and an eternal aspect to this stumbling which Jude speaks of. The immediate aspect of this stumbling is what James is referring to. The immediate aspect of this stumbling is what's seen in the life of King David, for instance, when he stumbled in regards to Bathsheba. It's what's seen in the life of Peter, when he stumbled by denying our Lord three times. And Jude here tells us that God is able to keep us from stumbling this way. He is able to keep us from stumbling in the immediate sense that David stumbled and Peter stumbled. And in our own struggle against sin, we would, we would do well to believe this. When we face temptation, we need to remember who our God is. He is the God who is able to keep you from stumbling. In my own life and in my own struggle against sin, there have been times when I've tried to wage war, fight that fight in my own strength. We might say there have been times when I've tried to keep myself from stumbling. And while I might be able to keep the sin or temptation at bay for a time, eventually when I go about it this way in my own strength, I fall. And sometimes I fall pretty hard. There have been other times when I'm tempted, when I recognize immediately that I do not have in myself what it takes to keep myself from stumbling. And in those moments, I've, I've confessed to God that I can't hold my own, that I need his help. And wonder of wonders, those times have often turned out better for me in the struggle against sin. My friends, you are not able to keep yourself from stumbling. But God is able to keep you from stumbling. And if you'll let him, he will help you. He will keep you. That's our God. 
As I said, there's also an eternal aspect to this stumbling. The eternal aspect is referenced in 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall or stumble. We might now think of Judas Iscariot. Judas didn't stumble in the immediate sense. Judas ultimately stumbled in the eternal sense. Well, I guess he did also stumble in the immediate sense, but, but he didn't stumble, or I should say he stumbled far more than, than David and Peter did. Judas stumbled and his soul was lost. David and Peter did not stumble in that sense. Okay, in this sense, this eternal sense, God kept David and Peter from stumbling. And in this way too, God is able to keep you and me from stumbling. In this way too, God is able to keep your soul and my soul from being lost. He is able to preserve you in his grace. And when we, when we think of this eternal sense in which God is able to keep us from stumbling, in which he is able to hold us fast, in which he is able to, to keep us from falling away, what a comfort this is, right? What a comfort this is to those of us who do stumble daily, that the God who chose you in Christ, the God who redeemed you through Christ, the God who called you to Christ, is also the God who is keeping you in Christ and for Christ. So that's the first thing our God is able to do. God is able to keep you from stumbling in the immediate sense, in the moment of temptation, but also, but also in the eternal sense of not letting your soul be lost. He is able to keep you from stumbling. The second of those two things God is able to do is present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is maybe one of the most glorious sayings, statements, truths in all of scripture. God is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To appreciate this, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 6. Hey, open a Bible, grab a Bible uh, out from in front of you. Isaiah chapter 6. I have no idea what page it's on. I imagine you'll find it. Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, the prophet himself, Isaiah, is presented before the presence of God's glory. All right, we see that in verses one through four. I'll read those verses for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse four, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All right, so what's going on here? Isaiah. Isaiah is, is presented before the presence of, of God's glory. He beholds it with his own eyes. Now let me ask, is Isaiah filled with joy in this moment? Is Isaiah saying, 
wow, look at me, lucky guy, what a privilege I have. No. (laughs) No, look what he says, beginning of verse 5. He's presented before God's presence, and he says, woe is me. That is not an expression of joy. That is an expression of fear. That is an expression of terror. That is an expression of dread. That is the emotion Isaiah experiences when he is presented before the presence of God's glory. Why? Why is that the emotion Isaiah experiences? Well, it's the emotion he experiences because he is not blameless, right? He says, woe is me, why? For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is filled with dread because he's not blameless. He's filled with dread because he is aware of the fact that he is a guilty, unclean sinner standing in the presence of the thrice holy God. And hear me clearly, friends, Isaiah's experience in this moment will be the experience of each and every one of us in judgment if left to ourselves. If left to ourselves in judgment, we will be presented before God's glory and we will be overcome by our sin and we will be able to say nothing but woe is me. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jude states it plainly. God is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not with fear, not with dread, not with terror. With great joy. You are not able to present yourself blameless before God. No way, no how, don't even think about it. You are a man or a woman or a child of unclean lips and you dwell among a people of unclean lips and there's nothing you can do to make your experience in judgment anything other than woeful. But God is able to do for you what you are unable to do for yourself. God is able to present you blameless, faultless, righteous before his presence with joy in your heart. Of course, Jude tells us in verse 25 how God does that. He does that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He does that through the precious blood of his son shed on the cross for our sins. By that blood, God cleanses us. By that blood, God makes us faultless in his sight and fills our hearts with joy in his presence. Interestingly enough, if you would keep reading in Isaiah 6, you would see all of that foreshadowed. Almost like like God's word speaks about Christ all through but this is the good news, right? Christians are not, Christians are not people who, who clean up their lives to the point that God now finds them acceptable. Not at all. No, Christians are people who recognize that like Isaiah, they are unclean and who trust 
that God is able to present us before himself as faultless through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Jude calls us to praise God for what he is able to do. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Second, Jude calls us to praise God for who he is. We see this in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So Jude says here, praise God, and he gives us reasons to praise God. He says, praise God because he alone is God. That's the significance of that word only, to the only God. Jude is saying, praise God because he alone is God. Praise God because no one else and nothing else can do for you what he can do for you. He alone is God. And therefore, he alone is worthy of all our praise. One of my favorite passages of scripture. Like, is every passage my favorite passage of scripture? Like, let's be honest now, okay? Another passage of scripture that I find wonderful uh, is Exodus 15, 11. Israel's just crossed the Red Sea. Moses goes on to sing a song of praise to the Lord. This is what Moses says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Of course, the implied answer to Moses' question is no one is like you. And we've discovered that if we're believers in Jesus, haven't we? There is no one like our God. No one so faithful, no one so gracious, no one so powerful, no one so trustworthy, no one so kind, no one so wise. There is no one like our God. Praise God because he alone is God. He's the only God. Jude also says that we should praise God because he alone is Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. That word Savior, it's it's a precious word, isn't it? It's so precious. It's a word that gives guilty, condemned sinners hope and confidence. God is our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jude says we should praise God because to him alone belongs glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Glory, that's... That's what the heavens declare. Glory is what filled the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. Glory is what the disciples saw in the transfiguration. Glory itself, is, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. It means splendor or radiance or beauty. And what Jude is saying here is that God is such that, that glory, glory really truly only belongs to him. He is so glorious that When we see him, everything else we ever thought was glorious will actually pale in comparison. To him be the glory, Jude says. Majesty is a word that is translated from the Greek word megalosune. You can hear the word mega in there. Mega means great or large or prominent. That's what what the word majesty is getting at. It's getting at the greatness of our God. There is none greater than him, to him alone be majesty. Dominion and authority are are synonyms. Both of them point us to the fact that 
God is sovereign, that nothing happens apart from his will. Nothing happens outside of his reign and his rule. It reminds us that, that we are not sovereign, but that God is sovereign. And as such, we are to praise him as the one who is sovereign and as the one who does what he pleases. And notice Jude says, these things are all God's forever and ever. These things uh, are God's from before all time. He is immutable. He does not change. What he was, he is. What he is, he will be forever and ever. He is the only God. He is our Savior. To him belongs glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever and ever. The last word of the letter is amen. It's a fitting word to close with. The word amen means truly or, or it is so. And so maybe the question to ask as we come to our come to the end of our study of Jude is, will you add your own amen to this letter? Will you take seriously Jude's call to defend the faith and to oppose false teachers in light of God's greatness and in light of God's glory and in light of God's gospel? Will you add your amen to this letter. Now you might ask, well, how do I do that? What, is that? what does that look like in my ordinary life? Well, here, here's one example. Early on in my ministry, a, a precious lady from our church, she came up to me. She was, she was teaching Sunday school. I don't even know. It was first or second or third. or It was, it was an elementary grade. And uh, she comes up to me, she says, Pastor, I really have some concerns about our Sunday school curriculum. The Sunday school curriculum we were using at the time was from Faith Alive. Uh, Faith Alive is a publishing arm of our own denomination. And I must confess that because our ministry shares supported it, we just blindly assumed that it would be theologically sound and okay for our children. Uh, anyways, uh, she I said, yeah, that's, that's great. Why don't you bring me the curriculum? We'll look at it together. And uh, we discovered that this curriculum from Faith Alive, which you and I have helped paid for with our hard-earned money, it was unwilling to speak with Scripture on the matter of creation. Imagine that. The, this thing we support, unwilling to speak with Scripture. That's a whole other topic. Anyways... She pointed this out to me. I brought it to some of the elders. We all said, well, this, this isn't good. We don't like this. And so this was several years ago when I was, when I was serving Prosper, of course, but we, we, changed, we changed the entire curriculum. We, we found something from somewhere else that served us well, that spoke with Scripture. But what I would say about that Sunday school teacher is, is this. She, she simply added her amen to Jude's letter. Wasn't that difficult? Wasn't that profound? Wasn't that spectacular? But she took seriously the call to contend for the faith. She identified false teaching and error in the church, and she dealt with it. I would say that's something of what this looks like for the average person.
And so I ask again, what, what about you? Will you add your own amen to Jude's letter? Will you contend for the faith once for all delivered to you? Warren Wiersbe says, as you read this epistle, you cannot help but realize that Christians must defend the faith and oppose false teachers. Christ is guarding us, but he wants us to, to guard the deposit he has left in our hands. There is awful doom awaiting those who reject Christ and teach Satan's lies. Some we might be able to save, others we can only pity, but may God help us to be faithful until he comes. Indeed, may he. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge afforded to us uh, in the letter of Jude to be people who contend for the faith. And yet, Lord, even with this challenge before us, thank you for the way Jude ends by lifting our eyes to you and by reminding us uh, of what you are able to do and who you are. Help us ever and always to hold on tightly to those things, to rest in those things, even as we seek to be faithful to you in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.